Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the All About Alts podcast. I am Jason DeBono, and I am your host. We are joined today by an old friend, although he's not so old, he's still a 20-something, but it ties back into the topic of today's discussion. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Nick Bond. A Nick is really a few different things, but Nick is primarily a full-time real estate investor, but he also has a crypto mining operation that he runs and has investors that participate into, which is pretty dang cool. And we're going to talk about that. So uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jason. It's always fun to get to talk to you about alternative investments and how that can kind of play into the New Views IRAs and tax-free and tax-deferred investing. Well, I appreciate you being here. I reached out to Nick and said, you know, Nick, I'd really like to bring someone on and talk about alternative investing and tax efficiency for the younger generation. And so I, I joke and say Nick is a 20-something, but he is, although I think he's closer to 30 than 20. But what Nick has accomplished in the investing world in such a short amount of time and coupling that with tax efficiency is something that's so cool. So I got to know Nick. His dad is a good friend and, and been a longtime friend of Newview and a client for many, many years. And he did an incredible job of introducing Nick into the business and kind of understanding it. But Nick has since spread his wings and really flew the coop and, and has run in a lot of different directions and done some pretty cool stuff. So Nick, really excited and, and appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, excited too. And like you said, got kind of involved pretty early there with, luckily my dad you know, was very involved with self-directed accounts when he stumbled upon them. So that kind of gave me a nice intro to get involved with uh, not only the IRAs and solo 401ks, but then NewView as well as the custodian. Well, you know, it's definitely something that a lot of, we have a lot of account holders that don't take the time to educate their kids. And I think that's probably just quick lesson number one is really to, you know, help your kids and grandkids or whomever in your life can learn this at a younger age. I think for a lot of people, they'd love to have known this in their 20s. You know, a lot of our clients discover self-direction in their 30s and 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, and the time for them to capitalize and it gets shorter and shorter. So let's dig in, Nick. I want to ask you a couple questions. I want you to share some of your knowledge for the audience listening. So let's just start a little bit. You know, what was your entry point? Not even so much into just self-direction. I mean, that's the tax efficiency piece of it. Just into investing. I mean, obviously you, you got to see it through the lens of your dad, but what was your first step out? How old were you? You know, and, and what gave you that confidence to step out and say, I'm gonna go do X or Y? Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I think my first intro to just investing in general, I would say, was watching my parents acquire single family homes through the nineties and the early two thousands. But I was the one that got to do some of the cleanup mess if I got in trouble or if I wanted to earn a little bit of extra money during the summers. And so I kind of saw all the terrible sides to single family real estate investing early on. And not that I don't think it put a super sour taste in my mouth, but I was like, oh, maybe there's some other ways to do stuff. And so going through college, I ran into a investing strategy where you buy land online and, and resell it. And my dad also had, you know, at the same time, around the same time, it urged me to open a new view account. But 
he had always shown me growing up, he had like this Excel spreadsheet where he showed, you know, that if you invest this much dollars each year at 10%, it'll grow this much. But then he had another column in that spreadsheet that showed this is how much you'll get if you have it in a retirement account that is tax free. And it was like you put 50 grand in in your 20s. And if it grows at 10% every year after that, the difference was like $9 million at the end of like 50 yeah. years. So I think that was really impactful to me. Like the first thing that was really impactful to me is seeing that just, you know, I'm a visual learner. So seeing that right out that there's a huge impact that way. And that investing in certain ways can make you a lot of money or more money. But anyway, so I got into this land flipping because didn't really enjoy or maybe I just thought there's a better way to make some money than through single family real estate. And their pitch line for the land stuff was no termites, no toilets, no tenants. And that spoke to me. And so actually my first land deal though I did was in my IRA, surprisingly enough. And I think, you know, being able to do a land deal like that was only possible for me because of I had seen people invest before. So I think that's really what gave me an edge up as far as you said, some people don't get into this until their 60s or 70s. I kind of grew up in it and got to see how it affects and impacts lives. So I kind of was able to hop into that right away. But um, the land deal that I did, I bought it off an auction website into my IRA. And then I think I went door knocking because it was like an infill lot around a few different houses in the neighborhood. And I just went and talked to the neighbors and asked if they're interested. And I actually, two neighbors actually ended up getting in a bidding war because they both didn't want the other one to have it. So I think I bought the property for about $1,800 in my IRA and then I resold it for $6,000. And when I was, I think it was 19 or 20 when I did that and I thought I had, you know, hit a gold mine having four grand profit on that. And so that was really got me into it. I think I kind of had a good experience on that first one. And so it really motivated me early on to do some more. But that was just a cool experience too, because you know, you go up to someone that is used to traditional investments, stock market, blah, blah, blah. And I remember being with my friends on the golf course being like, Yeah, I just bought this piece of land for eighteen hundred bucks, you know, at twenty years old. And they're like, they're like, are you crazy? And then when I sold it, then the conversation shifted and it was, Oh, wait, do you think we could do that too? And so I think when you know people see success too, you know, they kind of gravitate towards it and then you know they're a little bit more interested. So I would say for me the success early on and being able to see my dad and my my mom, what they did early on too, kind of helped me get into it at the age I did. Well, you know, it's amazing how perspective impacts your actions and activities and the fact that you had some insight into it. And it certainly doesn't, never hurts that the first deal is a winner too. When the first deal is a challenge or a struggle, it, it, you know, causes people maybe to think differently. But, you know, since then, so first property, uh, 1920, and, you know, here we are a good handful of years later, still actively investing in real estate, still actively, you know, finding ways to put money to work and deploy money. Yeah. And I mean, some of the other stuff like that I did right after was it was really cool. New views, you know, not to, you know, I'm going to give you guys some good compliments, but you guys were very early on in the crypto exchange space too, adopting ways for clients to get crypto into their accounts. And so I definitely made use of that. I think it was in 2017 or 18, well, maybe, maybe it's a year after, I can't remember, but it's pretty early on. I remember being able to buy Bitcoin and some Ethereum and Litecoin into my IRA with some of those profits that I made from that land deal. And so that was really cool too. And I, you know, that wouldn't have been possible to do that otherwise. 
And that's the beauty of strategy, right? You know, it's some people pick one investment class and they stick with it and they perfect it. And, you know, I think for the younger generation today, you know, they want to have their hands in a lot of different baskets. And I think it's great. It creates true diversity, but it also creates opportunity for them to hit some home runs on some assets that maybe, you know, the average investor may not go touch. So let's talk a little bit about crypto. I mean, certainly I think crypto is synonymous with, you know, the millennial and below generation in terms of age for me. And I I just hit another decade in terms of birthdays. So I think I'm a little further removed from my 20s than I was just a month ago. But crypto, I'm right at that kind of age where crypto is still a little elusive to me. I can understand it in some ways, but I also have known life without it so long that it doesn't quite appeal to me as quickly and efficiently. So what would you say to someone like me that is looking at crypto? Number one is an investment, right? An opportunity. And then maybe number two as a use case, right? Like what's the utility of it? I think it's something that, you know, you get a lot of different answers on. So for me, it's not a bad investment. There's a reason lots of people do it, but I've never quite been able to wrap my arms around it. So help me and and the older folks listening today kind of understand what was your attractiveness to get into crypto? What's the why behind it? And then what keeps you as, you know, actively involved in that marketplace? Yeah, for me, when I, my first introduction to it was actually, I was a mathematics major at Florida and we had a class in cryptography that just kind of walked through, you know, it was a lot of the kind of actually like what they did in World War II and on to encrypt messages as they were sending those back and forth, you know, so they wouldn't get taken by the enemy. But when I saw that and I saw kind of the math behind it, I hadn't really heard of cryptocurrency. I think Bitcoin was the only one really around at that time. And once I heard of Bitcoin and that it had these encryptions and these security measures in place from stuff I had learned prior, I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. And so kind of for those listening that don't know how that works, I mean, essentially, I'll just stick to Bitcoin as the example, but peer-to-peer money that you can send back and forth without having a bank account. So, you know, you control your own money. It's not sitting in a bank. And I think with a lot of the recent bank failures, that could maybe strike a chord with a lot of people. But essentially what's happening too is there's what's called Bitcoin mining, which, you know, is when these people that are running computers, they call it miners actually, because Bitcoin actually has a set number of Bitcoin that can ever be created or exist. So the supply is limited. And so they thought about what other kind of scarce resources there are on earth and it's gold and silver and, you know, these types of things. And so things that you actually mine out of the earth. And so they wanted to act like, you know, their resources scarce too. So they call these people miners that run these computers. So these miners are all using this cryptography that I mentioned earlier to find solutions to the algorithms that confirm the transaction in the blockchain and allow those people to send money back and forth. So the mining part is currently what we're involved with. And it's really cool. And something that is really funny too, you know, we talked about why they call it mining. And we had the inspector come out to take a look at our operation because it does require a lot of electricity. And the inspector comes out, takes a look around and like, was like, I read the report on your guys's mining. He's like, where are all the conveyor belts to take the minerals out of the ground? And so, <laughs> you know, this is in DeBerry, Florida. And for you guys who aren't familiar, it's a little bit of a smaller town. And so there's a little bit of education piece there too, even with just the municipalities themselves about what we're actually trying to do. And why we have enough power to run four neighborhoods in a 1200 square foot space. And, you know, as far as the investment side of things, obviously 
a lot of people try to base it off the network usage, kind of like the early days of internet or software companies. A lot of their value models are based off of how many users or how many people are actually utilizing the service that they provide. And so right now, it was actually at your conference, and I think it was two Januarys ago, where you guys had a few panel speakers speaking about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And that, to me, really opened my eyes to the usage that it's having. And it's like a you know exponential curve for how many of these people are actually adopting the uses of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as well. And so, I mean, the main use case that I see that I think will grow in the adoption is probably the Bitcoins or other cryptocurrencies like Litecoin as well that are peer-to-peer currencies that people can send back and forth securely without having to get a bank involved. And so when we also kind of describe that process, we kind of use the example of Western Union. And we say that the miners are the Western Union of crypto. And, you know, for Western Union, it's about a $35 charge, I think, or so maybe it's $25 now or whatever bank you use to send a wire. With Bitcoin and Litecoin, you know, you can send transactions, any number. You don't have to go in and talk to the manager of the bank to confirm who you are and what your money is and where you want to move it. And it's only at, I mean, 10 cents a transaction. And I think I saw a tweet earlier, too, that showed someone sent a billion dollars in Bitcoin and it was like $20 for the transaction. So that to me is like a really cool use case. And it can be done around the world. And anyone that's wired large amounts of money knows how painful of a process that can be. And you guys probably do too, right? At NewView, you guys manage a lot of assets and you probably feel that pain as well at times. Yeah, we do. We move a lot of money on behalf of our clients' accounts. And yeah, it can be painstakingly slow and challenging to make that happen for sure. You know, crypto is this interesting world because it's got such a unique side to it. You mentioned the mining side, right? So you have this where does it actually come from? And for a lot of people, and and I love the story about the municipality asking how you're moving the minerals, but, you know, for many people, if you don't really know much about it and someone used the term mining and crypto, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I would just assume it's some gem or metal that I haven't quite heard about, but you also have the investor side, right? Which is really a lot of people. And it's not just the younger generations that are adapting on the investment side. I mean, every major investment banking firm and wirehouse has a platform now to give access for really everyday investors. And then you have this third side over here, which is utility, right? Which is, you know, what is the actual use of it, right? I mean, I can trade anything back and forth and certainly create an environment for investments, right? Somebody buys it, somebody sells it. And throughout that process, it creates transactions. But the actual utility of crypto and seeing how that plays out is pretty darn cool. We're going to talk a little bit more because I'm pretty familiar with what you guys are doing with mini mines. And, and I want to come back and talk about that after our first kind of break segment here, because I think it's something that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about and don't know how to really get involved from an investment standpoint on the mining side. And so we'll, we'll come back to that. But I, I want to take a quick second to transition over to our quirky questions of the day. Uh, it uh, adds a little levity to it, but allows our producer, Maggie, to come up with a whole lot of questions based on what you guys are sending her on a daily basis. And so she's got three envelopes here. Remember, Maggie at newviewtrust.com. If you do want to send those in, I'm going middle envelope today. 
Nick, I don't know what's in here. You don't know what's in here, but we're going to get through this together. You ready to go? Yeah, let's, let's do All it. All right. Oh, this is a good one. I like when the, the first one's a good one. What fictional character would you be best friends with in real life? Fictional character, best friends in real life. I really enjoyed reading the Lord of the Rings series, actually, as a kid. I was a little bit of a nerd that way. And so if I had to pick someone, I think I would pick Aragon. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but, you know, just the guy who's kind of low key, doesn't want to be king, but, he, you know, he's kind of a super awesome guy at the same time. I'd probably pick him if I had to pick one person to, to be friends with as a fictional All character. right. Well, it, it's your question to answer. I know Lord of the Rings, but I think I, I just was, it didn't line up with where I was in my life at the time that it came out, but knew a lot of people that were quite into it. It's amazing how some of those series have gone on to do as much as they have. So you're going with the quiet king off to the side uh, is Nick's best friend. I like that. Number two, what obscure thing or things are you talented at? Well, that's an, that's an interesting one. Obscure. I mean, I kind of just focus on like a few things. And I mean, one that some people that don't know me might not know from the business world is, is soccer. I mean, I played that for 13, 14 years. And so I still coach as well in that sport. So maybe that's a little bit more obscure on the business side of things from people who know me on that, that end, but really obscure. I'm not really sure if there's anything much too obscure. No, no hidden talents at juggling or Rubik's cubes for me. Oh man. I was wondering what direction that could go. And it is amazing. Some of the things people can and do. I think I'm a lot like you, Nick. I don't have a whole lot of obscure talents. I don't have a whole lot of talents <laughs> in general. So getting to the obscure side is, is even harder. Although I think if you asked our respective spouses, they may think we have some, you know, plenty of obscure talents that we have and quirky things that we don't even realize we do. And they probably see us do it every day and get a good chuckle out of it. So let's move down to question number three. What game show would you be an amazing host of and why? I mean, I think the game show I would like to be a host of is The Price is Right. I don't know if you like that one, but I just, you know, the fact, there's so much stuff going on and it's also kind of got that practical element of household items, guessing the price. I think if I had to do one game show host, it'd be that. And I, I think I would just personally enjoy that. I don't know if I'd be good at it, but I'd personally enjoy it just for that fact. And, you know, I grew up watching that one too. And that was pretty fun. I've got to ask, you know, Bob Barker or Drew Carey? Ooh, I like Drew Carey personally, but you know, that's, Maybe there's some other people that like Bob Barker too. He's kind of the OG, right? He is. Yeah, that you can tell the age divide. I don't know exactly where it is, but I'm a Bob <laughs> Barker guy. You know, I grew up watching that. Now, I had to actually turn the dial on the television and move the rabbit ears to get CBS to come in for the prices right. So, it was the Bob Barker days. It's just it's all I know. I do think and I have to say Drew Carey actually was a very good handoff. That was a pretty well-known show. It ran daily. I mean, it was an unbelievable run that it had. And and Bob Barker was the face of it. So to see it live on as long as it has after that has been pretty impressive and says a lot about Drew Carey and his ability to carry that show. I think they're still making it. I don't know if... I think so too. I mean, I don't know if you saw this too, because it kind of pops in my head. There's that documentary on Netflix about the guy who tried to like kind of game the system with the prices right. And the dude was kind of a fanatic, would go and stand in line to be in the audience like every day or something. <laughs> Interesting. No, I've got to add that to my watch list. 
Yeah. Cool. Well, well, there you have it. We, you have successfully made it through the quirky questions of the day. Those listening, if you want to submit some questions for future guests, you can do so at Maggie with a Y at newviewtrust.com. Let's get back into this. I'm going to shift us back towards the real estate side and and maybe we'll kind of wrap things up on the crypto and crypto mining side, because that's an area that certainly I want to get a little deeper on with you. But let's talk a little bit about real estate. So you started kind of in that raw land auctioning, door knocking to find buyers of properties, which kind of knowing how you were doing that at the time was a really cool strategy and, and didn't require you to have a lot of money in your account to be able to execute that. Outside of crypto, what else are you doing from an investment standpoint? What strategies are you seeing out there? And what are you looking at in terms of opportunities, kind of with the way that the world is headed, you know, which I think we'd all agree is a bit sideways right now in terms of rising interest rates and all of these levels of uncertainty. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about what you're kind of seeing and where you see opportunity. Yeah. Something that we did last year was we sold a bunch of single family homes. I was working with my dad a lot last year, helping him do that. And we were, you know, grouping them up, selling them 1031 exchanging into actually industrial properties. And right now, so we were kind of making that shift from residential to commercial. And in that shift kind of got more in tune with commercial banking as well, because we were financing a lot of those deals. And these bankers and lenders that work there, super talented people, because they're underwriting stuff all the time. But kind of getting to get a little bit of insight into where they're at as well. And the other people at the bank kind of gave us some good insights, but you know, where it's going right now, at least for the single family world, I'll touch on that first before commercial, it seems like prices are holding. A lot of people thought prices might go back down, but from everyone we've been talking to, they don't really expect that, especially with the growth in Florida, you know, maybe some other places that aren't experiencing the job growth and the population growth that those places have might not see that. But I think for Florida, Texas, Tennessee, those kind of places that people are trying to move to right now, even if there is a downturn or a more substantial downturn than you know some people think that we're already in, those places might be a little insulated. And so from the single family side, prices are going to stay the same. But at the same time, it's tough to even buy right now because I know for me and other people my age, I bought a house about two, three years ago when interest rates were you know sub 3%. And so why would I go sell my house to move into something that I'm going to have to pay an extra you know, $1,500 a month on top of what I'm already paying right now for about the same house you know, quality size? So I think for that reason, you know, that's why there's not a lot of supply out there either right now is everyone's just kind of standing still waiting for interest rates to go back down so they can have the little bit more affordable monthly payments. And then on the commercial side, man, supply has dried up. I think similar narrative to the single family. People bought property a lot the last two, three years, and they're just holding on. Sellers still want really high prices and the buyers don't want to pay those high prices because now capital costs more. And from everyone that we've talked to in the commercial lending space, they're really being very cautious, not only on everything, but especially office. And you know that's kind of a typical thing that people have been hearing, I think, in that world as well as the downtown office space You know, could be in a big, big trouble once these kind of five, 10 year leases come up for big corporations. And I think some people are already seeing that as well. And then in the commercial space for multifamily, you know, we've seen people get caught on those bridge loans as they're acquiring those uh, big apartment complexes with that kind of mezzanine debt. And then they try to switch over to perm financing and they can't 
make the numbers work with the new interest rates increases. And I think there was a story not too long ago in Texas that I think it was Arbor Lending had to foreclose on about two to $300 million worth of multifamily because of that scenario. And so that's kind of a big risk too, I think, for people that have been acquiring the last year or so with that bridge lending. So we really like industrial. That's We kind of fell into that space. And you know, thankfully, right now, it seems like that's going to be actually growing sector with the rise of e-commerce and also kind of those small businesses that you know, have to have space and are a little bit more insulated from recessions like the AC companies and plumbers and electrical companies. So on the real estate side, we really like the industrial type product, but I don't think you can go wrong either with a single family if you can find the right prices. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, what I love is that you're looking at a variety of asset classes and and really you highlighted what what I think is one of the best parts about real estate as an asset is you can drive diversity inside the same asset class, right? So I can own real estate, but I can be diversified into rental properties. I can be diversified into commercial, industrial. You know, that's something that's really opportunistic. The second thing is geographics. You, know, you mentioned Florida, Texas, Tennessee. I think everybody would agree, you know, regardless of, of what happens in the market, those states will fare better just by the sheer numbers and metrics of people moving into those, you know, states. And, and then inside each of those, you're going to have winners and losers in, you know, different geographic areas inside of cities and even inside the same state. So no crystal ball, but if we did, I think we'd all be a bit too scared to even look into it. But let's talk a little bit about industrial. So, you know, you mentioned something on the industrial side, which is this industrial serves really is the back end service for not just the online emergent retailer space, right? You know, warehouses, Amazons of the world have to have their goods uh, parked somewhere. But you also mentioned that a lot of industrial is occupied by small businesses that for the most part are services that, you know, you need a plumber when you got a leak, whether you want to call them or not. And so more recession-proof type assets. Let's talk a little bit, you know, about that. When you look at industrial, what are you looking at? What are you looking for? You know, what advice would you have for someone, let's say that's younger, that may not have a 1031 exchange or a large enough amount to go in, and invest? Is industrial even an option? Are there ways to get access to that space sooner with less money? So yeah, give us a little bit of, of your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'll touch on kind of maybe how to get into it first and then kind of, you know, why we think industrial space is good right now. But for younger guys that are trying to get into it, I know for me, again, I was fortunate enough to have my father who was looking for these properties. And so, you know, if I found him one, that gave me kind of an inside chance to, to partner with someone that kind of had a little bit more credibility or even credit worthiness to a bank if we needed financing. So I would say for young guys, if they want to get involved in industrial or any sort of commercial asset in the real estate space is go and, you know, go to these networking events where you're going to find guys that are interested in doing deals that have a little bit more experience and, and partnering with them. Because I've always been taught that if you have a good deal, you know, you'll be able to find the money and you'll be able to find the people. It's just about finding the deal that is kind of the, the more difficult piece. So I know that I've had other people that in talking and going to these networking events that are very open to that type of situation, especially if they see someone that's young and driven and going to do the the down and dirty work that they don't want to do. And then kind of going into why we like industrial for the reason is we kind of got into it. My father actually owned an industrial, he was in the map business and they had an industrial building. And so we kind of had some experience managing that after the maps went under, we rented it out to other businesses. But when we were looking at 
what asset classes other than single family to go into. And you look at industrial and you go, well, with retail, if someone moves out, you're spending a good amount of money probably in tenant improvements, building that space out to specifically for their needs and what they are going to utilize that space for. But industrial is a little bit more cookie cutter where, you know, a warehouse, there's not really too much that you're going to change about it. And also we found that retail and multifamily and the spaces kind of that get the most attention are more popular to investors as well. They're kind of like the, we call it like the sexy asset class. And we're fine being in the boring, you know, assets that make money. And so with industrial, we saw that, that as well. But for kind of hitting on the piece of, you know, you got the big box Amazon centers that are being built right now in the distribution centers. We don't really play in that space. We think, I mean, I think that space is good, but like you mentioned, we kind of service a lot of the smaller businesses. I mean, we do have some national and and global tenants, but for the main part, we stick to the, you know, 10,000 square foot to 60,000 square foot spaces that right now you almost can't even build make a profit on because how expensive construction is right now. And so with that space, there's not a whole lot of new product coming on the market, but there's a bunch of new demand for it. And so that's really increasing the rent prices right now as well. And so we've stuck to that space just, you know, for those three reasons, you know, lack of supply and no new incoming supply, the recession proof tenants, and then also just the crazy demand that we see coming in and we kind of position, try to position ourselves where we have a little bit of a value add as well, where, you know, maybe it's an owner that didn't really take care of the property like he should and wasn't managing it and raising rents, maybe because the tenants were his friends and he didn't want to, you know, make them angry all the way to some of these guys we've seen have brokers that honestly have been doing that. Maybe their clients a little bit disservice based on how they've been marketing the property. And so we're the only ones that are able to come in and kind of swoop that property up. And so we're, we, we've, you know, gotten into industrial for you know those reasons and it's been good so far i love talking about asset classes that aren't at the forefront of everybody's mind you know certainly multifamily, self-storage single family right short-term rentals i mean you know those are things that are talked about all the time but there's a lot of asset classes and if you go back 15 or 20 years nobody was talking about storage you know and and there's other asset classes like that and i think industrial may find its way into that kind of five seven ten years from now to being that darling that's being talked about, especially as other classes, asset classes like office, which you pointed out, may not fare as well in the next five to seven years. So, you know, the markets are always interesting to kind of pick apart and try to find opportunities. And what I love about real estate is that there's an opportunity in every market. You may have to look a little harder than you did the day before, but there's always an opportunity lurking and, and some asset classes at times just flash much better opportunity than others. So sounds like you guys have been digging around quite a bit in, into the various asset classes and you know, love to hear you guys honing in and being able to capitalize on that industrial market. Let's shift gears because one of the things that I saw recently on LinkedIn was mini mines. And you know, I remember you and your dad came by the office, I don't know, about six months ago, 12 months ago, and we were just chatting about opportunities for you know, what are the rules and regs on IRAs as it relates to investing into kind of a business and if that business is crypto mining. And it was a great discussion, loved having it, but love even more to see what you guys have done. So what started off as kind of an idea has since blossomed and is a reality. So give our listeners a little bit of an understanding of what Mini Minds is, what's its purpose, and kind of what you do and, and how you're monetizing the activity that you're putting into it. Yeah, mini mines 
we kind of started and the name kind of comes from, we wanted to create a bunch of different mines geographically right now in the state of Florida and right now Kansas, but kind of spreading these out because the institutional size ones are, you know, 200 megawatts. And for example, our one facility right now that is a kind of our research and development facility is one megawatt. So we kind of have a little bit of smaller facilities going on than these institutions, but also because we mine right now exclusively Litecoin, and that's a little bit different than everyone else. That's considered an altcoin. So that kind of goes along to the the theme of the uh, podcast, but we kind of called it mini mines because small coins, which are like the smaller cap coins, and then the uh, miniature kind of mining facilities as well. But really what we do at mini mines is we try to help kind of high net worth individuals reduce their tax liability. And we do that through selling machines or miners that are computers that are mining these coins to the investors through a fund right now that we have set up. And so they kind of get exposure in our eyes to the safest way to invest in crypto, which is through mining, because you're not necessarily subject to the market volatility. You are if you hold the coins, but we kind of have a system where we sell the coins periodically into cash. And so that way we give the investor their their cash return. And then now they can use that to go and buy Litecoin, Bitcoin, whatever they want, or maybe they go and buy real estate. But on the front end, their investment is all subject to the bonus depreciation from these, these miners or computers. And so we've kind of helped people get set up that way. And we have a few different options on how, how that could work. But our cookie cutter system is running them through our fund. And then, you know, plugging in their computers right away and, and getting that started. Well, it's so fascinating, the, the mining operation, because it, you know, when you think about it, it is almost like digging for gold. But, you know, the translation is far from digging for gold. <laughs> you know, you're using computers and algorithms and code sequencing to get to, you know, this Bitcoin or Litecoin or whatever, you know, you're, you're mining. And then you take it and sell it. I mean, no different than, you know, shaking out your gold mining equipment and seeing what little stones or gems are there and then going and cashing them in. So, you know, in the mining world, just a kind of a quick question for my ignorance, in the mining world, you know, are you always guaranteed to get results? You know, whereas if I if I go out and I go mine a, a river in Colorado for the entire day, I could end up empty handed or I could end up, you know, literally striking gold or, or having a, a huge opportunity. How does that compare and translate into the mining world from a crypto standpoint? The miners, as long as they're plugged in and running properly, you know, meaning there's no maintenance issues or downtime, you will always make money or make produce some sort of Litecoin, something that is kind of a little bit more technical, but is when you're plugging these computers in to mine and try to, you know, get the rewards for solving the, the algorithm, you actually are joining a pool of miners. And so all these miners are all trying to solve the same thing. But instead of say, you know, your one computer or their one computer hits it and takes everything. Now you all put your power together and you share the reward based on how much computer power that you're sharing with that pool. And that standpoint, you're always guaranteed to get something back out if the computer is running and working in that way. So yeah, it's not necessarily like the gold mining where you can come up empty handed, but the one thing that you are subject to is the electrical you know, prices, because that's the biggest expense in crypto mining. And so while you're always producing, you got to be very careful that what you're producing isn't going to be less than the electrical cost that you have. And because now you're upside down and it you know, doesn't really make much sense anymore. 
So luckily we're still at about a 60% margin just on the electric alone. And so we still have some wiggle room where if the electrical prices went up, we wouldn't be as affected. And a lot of these crypto miners are getting really, really creative with how to produce energy. I mean, they, you got guys pulling four megawatts alone from a river um, that they have like a little like windmill type thing where the water runs through and produces electricity. You got solar. One of the biggest ones right now is actually flare gas. And the flare gas mines, that's actually one that we have partnered with in Kansas, is a lot of these oil fields. One of the byproducts of drilling for oil is natural gas. And so, and it's a bunch of natural gas. And typically what these guys do is they just flare it off into the atmosphere. And so what a lot of these Bitcoin miners and, you know, Litecoin miners have been doing is they'll get generators that run the natural gas through the generator to create electricity. And then they'll plug in the computers to those generators. And now they're converting that gas that was being shot off into the atmosphere, you know, not doing anything into Bitcoin or Litecoin or whatever you're mining. And so, you know, there's this big push of saying Bitcoin mining and, you know, crypto mining is very against the environment and it's only hurting the environment. But from the conferences and talks that I've attended, I've seen the exact opposite. And while they do use massive amounts of power, they're incentivized to find the most stranded uses of power, you know, through those creative ways that I just mentioned. Well, it's amazing how, you know, if you kind of look back you know, from a business need and operation standpoint, that really power is the most scarce resource in the mining world, you know, and if you'd have told me that, you know, a few years ago, without an understanding of how mining work, I'd be baffled by it. But understanding that today, and so it sounds like in what you guys have done, not only have you have you created an environment to be able to use the bonus depreciation and and mine and successfully mine, but you've also been able to do it whilst tackling some of the electrical needs, and being able to ensure you guys have the ample electric to get the Litecoin mined out. So super cool stuff on the mini mine side. I loved hearing about it in theory, but actually love to see it come to fruition. And how many facilities do you guys have now? We currently have three and we actually just got the building permits for our next one. It's going to be a 24 megawatt facility right next to our one in DeBerry. So we're excited to get that one going as well. That's so cool. Well, your knowledge and expertise, you know, I I love talking to you and I love hearing about some of the things that you're doing. And it amazes me at at such a young age that you've been able to accomplish so much and, and find so many different ways to not just drive return, but also to be a resource to others. I'm going to put you on the hot seat here because we've got some hot button issues that we need your hot take on. So let me grab my little notes here and we're going to run through our lightning round. Three questions, pretty straight. They're not quirky. They're deliberate. So I'm going to hit you with them. Give us whatever comes to mind when you hear the question. So let's start with question number one. Will the United States have an official digital currency in the next five years? I would say yes. It seems to be trending that way with a lot of the regulations going on with the current cryptocurrencies. You know, some people even think that the SEC really dove into uh, Ripple XRP in order to kind of figure out how to do that for themselves. I would say yes, but I'd also say the dollar almost is right now in a way. I mean, it can't be tracked as as crazily as some of these cryptocurrencies could be tracked if they switch the technology, but you know, sometimes I question whether USD right now isn't already a, a CBDC. So yeah, short answer, yes. I love talking about this because it's hard to suggest we couldn't benefit from it. You know, I think it's really what does it look like? Because it's just different. But 
Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, we're, we're already moving money digitally. I mean, look at Venmo and all these other platforms. I mean, they're just moving dollars. But when's the last time, you know, you, you actually had to pay for something in cash? In fact, most places you get on an airplane anymore and you try to hand them cash and they won't even take it. And, you know, people think, well, why would they ever do that? And, and if you stop and think about it, you got money, right? You've got theft, you've got loss, you've got reconciliation costs, you've got transportation costs, you've got security costs. When you add all of that in, the 3% credit card fee to take a credit card is peanuts because they're making it up in so many other areas. And, and I can't see us a reason why we can't get there. I will be curious to see how that plays out. But yeah, I think you're onto something that maybe we're already there and nobody's really ready to accept it yet. Question number two, are interest rates where they are today, and, and we're sitting at, I think, five and a quarter as, as of the recording, are interest rates going to continue to have impact on real estate or is that peaking out and we can start to, to get onto the backside? I mean, I think based on the Fed's last announcement, I mean, everyone was a little bit surprised that they even increased interest rates then. I think it was a week or two ago. But it seems like now that, you know, they got the lowering of the uh, CPI a little bit it maybe looks like it's trending in that direction. I'm not the best one to answer it, but I think that, you know, hopefully we'll start to see interest rates come back down. I don't know if we'll ever see them to come back down to COVID levels, but it does seem like there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel and we might have to take some, a little bit of a bumpy ride to get there, but you know, it looks like we might be able to get there. But as far as real estate's concerned, you know, I think that as those interest rates decrease, maybe you'll see a little bit more activity. All right. Question number three, and this is the one that everybody listening is dying to know. Who's the better investor, you or your dad? <laughs> Definitely him. I mean, I don't think I can take away all his experience at all. I mean, been doing it for, you know, 40 some years. The only thing that maybe I have him on is the technology side with the spreadsheets and everything. But I don't think I'd beat him out on instinct. He's just got that instinct. I, one story I tell everyone is when we were first buying some industrial properties, I was I had talked to some brokers and we were touring some of the sites. We pull up to one property and he just lo immediately looks at it and goes, yeah, I'm, I want this one. And I was just like, you know, why do you want this one? And he's like, you know what? He's like, it's just, it's, you know, he had all these reasons. It's block, it's good price per square foot. But like he just pulled up to it and was like, I want that one. And honestly, after we've gone through a bunch of different acquisitions, that was probably one of the best ones. So I can't take that away from him at all. That's fair. Experience, you know, does create wisdom and whether we want to accept it or admit it or not, there is something to be doing something for a long time and being able to master it. But I'm sure it helps having another perspective and a, and a different generational perspective. The way that you view the world and where it's headed is different maybe than what he sees. Not different bad, but just different perspectives. And, and I think the combination of those sounds like it's creating quite the partnership and opportunity for you guys to continue to go out and, and make investments and acquisitions for you and for investors that work through you guys. So well, Nick, I, I want to thank you for getting on the hot seat. I'll, I'll let you off of that. We'll kind of bring this down to a close. And the thing that I think would be you know, most helpful here before we hit the learn before you burn segment is how do people get in touch with you? You know, What's the best way that people can reach you? And we'll certainly get this added to the show notes as well. Yeah, best way is just phone or email. Awesome. We'll throw both of those into the show notes and you'll be able to, uh, to access those on any of the podcast platforms. 
All right. Well, as we close out every single show with the learn before you burn, this is the segment where you get to give someone the lesson without them having to go through the experience piece of it. Most of these you know, our experiences that did sting and did hurt. We had to learn the lesson the hard way. So what is your, Nick, learn before you burn advice for our listeners today? For me, I think it would just be the, actually, I have a specific deal in mind. Well, I, this was about my first rental property. I went through the whole process of trying to get the loan. You know, I was buying as a first time home buyer and you could put a low amount of money down, but I had put it off for so long because I was like, well, I know you need two years proof of income. And I don't have that yet. And I need to have to, I'm going to have to wait. So I waited, you know, I think a couple of years before I really got my feet like, oh, I'm going to dive in and do this now. And then come to find out, and this is, you know, really relatable to the younger generation, but you can buy a house right after college. If you're working in the same field that you have your degree in, they'll take that as your two years proof of income. And so to me, I've talked to a lot of people about that concept that didn't know it and they're, they were amazed. And I actually had a couple of friends that bought properties early on because of that, didn't realize they could even qualify for a loan. And so, you know, I didn't maybe directly get burned in that, but indirectly not knowing that, that information, I was really kicking myself afterwards. Like, wow, I could have done this two years ago and maybe have had another property by now. So I think that's, you know, a good learning lesson for someone is if you don't think you can get a loan, make sure you just talk to people and, and make sure that you really can't if you want to buy that property. Well, that is something I learned something new today as well on that front. I had no idea that you could do that to qualify. So good advice and good guidance. And you know, just because you may not have felt the pain, there's always opportunity cost. And knowing what that could or would have been certainly would be some pain, I'm sure, looking back over that two-year period you waited. So well, Nick, listen, man, I love catching up with you. I appreciate your time today and, and kind of imparting your wisdom that you've been able to create and, and share at such a young age. So thanks for being here. Thanks for being on the show. And, and we'll certainly look forward to getting you back on. We'll get you back on in your 30-something so we can keep the title nice and consistent. Yeah, thanks, Jason. That sounds good. Always, always great talking to you too. All right. Well, for those on the podcast today, we want to thank you for being part of our community. Our goal here at All About Alts is to continue to help you guys understand how to find good investment strategies and opportunities and couple it with great tax efficiency. So if you like what you heard today, make sure that you click the like button, leave us a five-star review so others can be brought into the fold and community and, and get to understand how they can put the work their money to work more efficiently. But you can find us on all the major podcasts. Be sure to like and share along the way. But we appreciate you guys being part of the community here. And we'll see you guys next time on All About Alts. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S, to 407 708 1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content and we'll see you next week.